back a year ago, um, many of my friends and I, we made plans in case we got sick and we couldn't take care of our kids if we were hospitalized. You know, we did things like update our wills, make sure life insurance premiums were auto paid. And a lot of that worry has gone away. Nick Mark is a critical care doctor. He works at different hospitals in Seattle and spent the past 15 months treating some of the sickest COVID-19 patients in intensive care units. When I first spoke with Nick back in episode 10 of this podcast, it was still the early days of the pandemic. He told me about a moment he was getting ready to insert a breathing tube into a patient who had COVID-19 and was struck by the thought that even though he was decked out in protective gear, this could be the moment he catches the virus, a virus he might not survive. That moment stuck with me because it captured what those early days felt like, the uncertainty and fragility many of us felt, whether we worked in hospitals or not. But nowadays, his work feels completely different. This is not back to normal by any stretch, but it's sort of a new normal. Like working in the ICU with some number of COVID patients has just sort of become the reality of working in an ICU. Uh, unlike a year ago, it's not an ICU which is full of COVID patients. There's a few COVID patients at any given time in most hospitals, but they're not. it's not like converting wards to deal with overflow. It's like night and day going from 2020 to 2021. You know, it just, it's not that, it's not that the pandemic is over, but it does feel like we've turned a corner and it feels like it's getting better. And that has made it much, much easier to, you know, go into work and to take care of these patients, knowing that, you know, we are making progress as a, as a society against this. And I, I gotta say, I'm surprised. I, I didn't, I didn't expect things to, to turn around the way they have. So I, I think that's I think that's where my um, my optimism comes from is that you know uh, reality has actually been better than what I what I expected. I'm Will James. I'm Jennifer Wing, and this is the final episode of Transmission. Over the past 15 months, 34 episodes, the staff here at KNKX has told you stories about the coronavirus pandemic, the physical, mental, financial, and social toll of this historic time. At each turn, we've tried to capture what it has felt like to live through all of this. And that's true for this new moment we're in now. As Nick said, the pandemic isn't over, but in Seattle, 70% of people older than 12 are now fully vaccinated. And the city has had days recently when the number of new people diagnosed with COVID-19 is in the single digits. Washington Governor Jay Inslee got up in front of TV cameras recently and announced that businesses and activities in the state will fully reopen by the end of this month. So on June 30th, uh, uh, a huge number of our restrictions will be removed, the ones that people are familiar with in restaurants and gyms and the like. We are very pleased to be able to announce this. We have more work to do, but this should give us a good path forward in reopening our state. We started this podcast in March of 2020 by interviewing people on the mostly deserted streets of downtown Seattle when things first shut down and we were all still absorbing what was going on. And now the streets are starting to fill up with people again. It feels a little like the world that existed before the pandemic. This also feels like a moment to meet up again with some of the people we've introduced you to throughout this series and to see how they're doing, how they've changed, and how they see the future playing out. It's easy to forget, but back in the early days of the coronavirus outbreak in the United States, the eyes of the country were on the Seattle area. 
On January 19, 2020, a 35-year-old man went to a clinic in Snohomish County, just north of Seattle, with a cough. He had just returned from a trip to Wuhan, China. The next day, he became the first person in the United States diagnosed with COVID-19. For weeks, the conventional wisdom was that this was an isolated case caused by travel and that the virus was not spreading from person to person here. But Helen Chu thought otherwise. She led a team of scientists in Seattle studying the flu, and they started testing the samples they got for the coronavirus. Soon, they found it. It was one of the earliest warnings that the virus was on the loose here. I caught up with Helen recently, and despite this central role she played in understanding the pandemic, when I asked her what this past year has taught her, her answer wasn't anything to do with science. It had to do with people. She said she learned how society leaves mothers to kind of fend for themselves. I I think that was, for me, the hardest part of this pandemic was the fact that I suddenly had to do two jobs simultaneously. And there was really no expectation that one would slow down because the other one became almost all-encompassing, that you were actually expected to do both. What I really wanted to talk with Helen about was the future. I mean, after all, she studies viruses and how they spread. I wanted to know when she thought we'd truly be free of the coronavirus. I think COVID is not going to go away, that it will probably become a seasonal virus that will cause infections in certain populations probably every single year, and that there will be a vaccine available and we'll probably administer it annually, and it will become part of just the number of respiratory viruses that cause people to get sick in the fall and the winter. What will become different is that we now have the most vulnerable vaccinated, so the numbers of hospitalizations and deaths will go down And we have much of the workforce heading towards complete vaccination so that they'll be able to return back to normal. I think what will drive full return to normal is pediatric vaccination. So as soon as the kids are fully vaccinated, I think that will move us towards essentially a normal society. I think some things will not go away. I would like to see continuation of indoor masking and potentially masking on planes and at airports. I think that a lot of the things that we built in around flexibility in working from home should stay in place, especially for people who are sick and want to continue to work, which many of us do, because we're not that sick. And I think that better systems of testing and surveillance will hopefully be put in place, and that will give us more time to prepare for next time. Nick, the critical care doctor, is preparing for something similar, a seasonal coronavirus that lands a few very sick patients in his intensive care units each year, kind of like the flu. I think COVID may sort of become something where we see it in people who choose not to have the vaccine. We see it in people who can't get the vaccine. We see it in people who have a weakened immune system where the vaccine just isn't effective and they get breakthrough cases. I think we're probably still going to be seeing that a year from now. Both of these doctors leave room for uncertainty in their predictions. For Nick, the uncertainty comes from other countries like India, where the pandemic is still raging. As long as the virus is spreading uncontrolled somewhere in the world, we're not safe here in the United States. 
one thing to remember is that like there's no such thing as the U.S. gets back to normal and the rest of the world is still dealing with raging pandemics. You know, we have global supply chains, we have global travel. You know, the vaccine is not 100% effective. Like if if there are raging pandemics in other parts of the world, like it will come to our shores. Like it's not like we can just like ignore it. For Helen, the uncertainty comes from the question of children getting vaccinated. She comes back to this idea that in order to truly defeat the virus, we need to vaccinate lots of kids. But in the past, here in Washington state, there's been a trend of parents choosing not to vaccinate their kids for things like measles. I think that's something we need to sort out and figure out if the vaccine hesitancy that's been seen in Washington state around measles will then extend over to vaccine hesitancy around SARS-CoV-2. And are we going to end up with pockets of unvaccinated children in certain communities? And therefore, do we need to head towards vaccine mandates? We still haven't been able to have her funeral. Um, I still have all of her personal effects, you know, at my house. Haven't been able to, you know, meet with the siblings to dole out who's getting what. That's Michelle Bennett, who we first heard from in Episode 7, speaking about her mother, Carol Ann Gann, who was the 95th person in King County, Washington, to die of COVID-19. That was last March. At this point, the number of deaths is more than 1,600 in King County and approaching 6,000 statewide. There's no going back to normal for people like Michelle. You know, with the death of my mom, it's just like still kind of not real sometimes. And I think it always feels like it's the door's just not closed yet. And that's, that's a hard thing to live with every day. On April 2nd, 2020, a little after Michelle's mom died, a man named Tomas Lopez also died of COVID-19. This was just as people in Washington state were waking up to the reality that the Latino community was getting hit disproportionately hard by the coronavirus. Tomas and his family ran a restaurant and two taco trucks in the Seattle area, and he continued working even as his coughing got so bad it caused bruises on his stomach. Days before he died, he was filling out payroll paperwork for the family business. That's according to Tomas's wife, Antonia Zamorano, who we heard from in episode 15. KNKX reporter Liliana Fowler recently caught up with Antonia. Yeah, she was difficult to get a hold of. Uh, I had to try for several days. And that's because she's so busy. She's busy running the restaurant that her husband used to run. She says she sometimes wakes up at 5 in the morning to work and goes all the way to 9 p.m., and that's with the help of her children. She has three children. They're from ages 13 to 20, and even the youngest one is pitching in. So her life, I think, has been pretty hectic since her husband passed away. Is she, like, figuring out how to do this on her own? I, I know that a year ago she told us that her husband played a pretty big role in managing the day-to-day business operations. Right. I asked her exactly that. I said, you know, were you involved in the business before he passed away? You know, did you already know how to do some of this stuff? And she said no. 
that this is, you know, this is a business that has been around for more than a decade. And she said that he was really the, the business person in the family. And she suddenly had to become that person after he passed away. And so they have two food trucks in downtown Seattle. She manages one, the one that her husband used to run, and her son manages the other. But she says that, you know, her son was kind of freaked out about, like, the idea of driving this big food truck. And he did it anyway. He ended up crashing it at one point. Wow. Oh, no. You know, it's it's just the fact that the family, her very dedicated kids have jumped in to help mom. And it's it's clear that they're all sticking together and trying to get through this together as a as a family unit. You have to imagine there are few families that have been more profoundly affected by this pandemic than this family that lost its its breadwinner, not just a beloved father and husband, but this loss has scrambled their whole financial lives and and changed what each of these family members are doing day to day. Right. It completely upended their life. And while we're you know, for a lot of us, things are getting better and things are opening up. And it's easy to forget, I think, that there are some individuals and some families who are still very much feeling the effects of the pandemic, uh, even now. Yeah. How did she sound when she was talking to you? She sounded busy. She sounded kind of stressed out. She got really serious and and I guess sad sounding when we talked specifically about her husband and the one year anniversary of his passing she says when she really starts to think about him again, that her chest starts hurting and she can actually feel it physically, her grief still. And so she says she tries not to do that and she just tries to stay strong for her children and keep going. But she noted, you know, when I was asking her all these questions about her her husband, it was bringing up all these feelings for her and uh, she could, she could, she starts having trouble breathing. But as hard as it is, Antonia's holding all of it together. Christina Jumper is another person who's still figuring all this out. Do you ever think about where you would be right now if the pandemic didn't happen? I think about it all the time, to be honest. <laughs> um, it kind of seems like a, a fever dream in some ways. Like I close my eyes and I, I look back at old pictures of just being in crowds of people and dancing and sitting next to strangers on the bus and sharing food with people. And it's just like, where did that world go? Christina's one of the people coming out of this pandemic with a different life than she had before. We heard from her in episode 31. She entered the pandemic living in Seattle and working what she called her first big girl job in marketing. But she was also struggling with depression and an eating disorder, bulimia. The pandemic made those problems impossible to ignore. In the end, I can't think about what would have happened because like, I need every bit of energy I can muster to deal with the reality of now. 
And I have to believe that there's hope. I have to believe that now it can get better. Over the course of the pandemic, Christina got laid off, moved back home to Virginia for a while, and then moved back to Seattle. The last we heard from her, her bulimia had gotten so severe she was entering inpatient treatment. She was in the hospital for a month, and then did another round of intensive treatment for a month. Since that ended, she's been unemployed, working on her art and a podcast about mental health, and preparing for a big move in August. I am moving back home to the East Coast to be closer to my family. Uh, It's not going to be permanent. I just need to save money (laughs) and be closer to my support system and just focus on recovery. Like my recovery is, it's really hard for me to say this, but like my recovery is my full-time job right now. And that feels like a cop-out that feels lazy. I've been working since I was 12. I don't know what the future holds. I don't know what I'm going to do. In some ways, I feel like I'm a freshman in college all over again, even though I'm going to be 29 this year. I feel like my life's kind of starting over. And that's a good thing. After treatment, Christina is doing better with her bulimia, but she's careful to say she's not cured. I've binged and purged a few times. I've restricted. Today, like, I'll be honest, I just had a banana and peanut butter and like I'm drinking coffee and like I'm, 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 I can see myself going back to that old way of living and it's kind of scary. And, you know, I talked with you before about treatment options during the pandemic and how difficult it is to receive help. And that still holds true. I think I keep finding myself wanting to spin this as if this pandemic didn't happen, you might not have gone through this terrible gauntlet and thus would not have maybe ended up in treatment and confronting some of these things. And I don't know if that's true though. I don't know if that's just a story I'm telling myself in my head. I mean, I think if I if the pandemic didn't happen, I might have ended up in the same place, but it would have taken a lot longer because where I was at with my career and with my eating disorder, I was just kind of trudging along and ignoring all the red flags my brain was giving me that I wasn't happy and that I wasn't content and that um, I, I was just kind of doing life the way I thought I was supposed to do life. And I think the pandemic kind of made everyone re-examine their lives and it, it totally, there, there's a paradigm shift that happened. I look at things differently now, for sure. I look at my timeline differently now. I think nothing is linear. Recovery isn't linear. Careers aren't linear. Mental health journeys aren't linear. And I'm just trying to keep telling myself that. Another person who is having a non-linear ride through this pandemic is bartender Steve Weaver. It's been a just back and forth with unemployment, with with these jobs, you know, with with waiting for Congress to, you know, finally approve something. It was just a white knuckle the whole time. When I first spoke with Steve a year ago for episode 19, he was living in his car after getting laid off from his bartending job. He started doing DoorDash deliveries, trying to keep up with bills and pay for insulin for his diabetes. Then the state denied him unemployment benefits. 
He staged one-man protests at the state capitol for leaving people like him behind and rallied to support others lost in the unemployment system. I caught up with him. I'm good. I'm good. Um, it's, you know, it's been a roller coaster of a year. Things have gotten better since you and I talked. You know, I've been, uh, I am homed. I'm living with my girlfriend now. We actually just this last week got approved for a new place. So we're going to be moving into a, just this beautiful, massive townhome in Vancouver. What, what did you learn about yourself this past year that you didn't know before? Uh, I learned, I think I learned how to survive. You know, I think I, I, I think I had known, I, I, I've always known what it was like to not be wealthy, to be poor. That's, you know, I grew up with, with very little means, but, but I've never really had to just survive, you know, just, just absolutely positively scrape by. I mean, collecting, you know, scraping coins out of my car cup holder for food and, and things like that. Those are those are things that I'd never had to deal with. You know, having to having to work and cash out daily with DoorDash just to just buy insulin. That's that's something I've never had to deal with. When I checked back in with Steve a few weeks ago, on top of moving into a house, he was getting ready to get back to work as a bartender. The hotel that employed him was preparing to open back up. But the pandemic has changed Steve's view of the world. He says he's going to keep fighting for people exploited by their bosses and the government. This, this whole pandemic exposed so many flaws in, in the system. I went from making $70,000 a year to living in my car. Nearly, you know, within a month, I I, I don't think it's something that any of us should feel too far removed from. And, And that's, this is why we need to work to create a system where that, that doesn't happen. Uh, because no one, whether whether they make $100,000 or $30,000, no one should have to face that type of choice. Hopefully it'll be a different summer than last summer. We'll see. We'll see. What are, what are you? You're, so you're getting out of journalism. What are you doing? I am for now. Yeah, I don't know what... Um, if I'll come back to it, I don't know. And there's always podcasts, like I could do something on the side. Yeah, so that brings us to right now, Jennifer, with the news that, like a lot of people who have made big changes and reevaluated their lives during the pandemic, you have moved on and changed jobs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, uh, it's been a year. It's been a year and it's been a time to reevaluate things. I can relate to all of the people we've spoken to over the last year who have been doing the same thing, reevaluating where they are in life. This pandemic 
really makes you think about mortality. It makes you think about what's important, what you want to do in your life, the different chapters you have in your book and what you want to add to it. And for me, it was time to to start a new chapter. Do you want to say just a little bit about what you're doing now? <laughs> sure. It's not it's not as sexy as journalism, <laughs> or I should rephrase that, cut that part. Because journalism um, is not sexy at all, sexy and everyone all. knows it. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, so I am going from being an observer to a more of a participant in the world. I'm working for a nonprofit that serves as a support system to other nonprofit organizations. It's been really eye-opening and humbling to see all of the work that goes on behind the scenes at these places. Regarding your very recent past life as an observer, you're the one person who, who followed this podcast from beginning to end and was involved in some way in every single episode. I don't know how many people you talk to about this pandemic, probably dozens. I don't know, you just have a really unique view of this disaster. What do you take away from having that really weird front row seat to this mm-hmm. pandemic? I will always remember the voices that have been in this podcast from the people who organized a dance party in circles <laughs> that Bellamy Palethorpe covered early on when people, we were all desperate for, for community to, you know, the scientists doing their best to explain these concepts and the complexity behind the vaccines and the complexity of the virus and and voices like Antonia's and the grief. And I think it's going to take some time and distance to appreciate. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing, right? Like that we're all just starting to kind of reflect on this as something in the past, but it's really not in the past yet. Like we have no distance from this. We we're only starting to appreciate how it's changed us and how it's changed the world. But we're getting glimpses of it, right? Yeah, we're getting glimpses. And I keep finding myself looking forward. I, none of us, we're not going to forget what we've all been through. Uh, but I, more and more, my, my attention is pointing in a more forward direction. And I keep thinking about things I want to do and things I'm excited about. And there are things I want to do coming out of this that I haven't wanted to do in a long time, like to be on a crowded dance floor with a bunch of sweaty strangers. I Like... I really haven't had interest in that since my early 20s. And now I'm like, I think I could do that again. I think I need to experience that again (laughs) for a night. Well, I'm going to miss working with you. I'm going to miss working with you too, Will. You want to do the credits? Sure, I'll do the credits. Uh, Well, let's do them together. Transmission is made with help from the KNKX Newsroom. This episode was produced by me, Will James, and Jennifer Wing. Florangela Davila is our executive producer. This podcast was launched in the very early days of the pandemic by Gabriel Spitzer, who was its first host, Kevin Kniestead, Posey Gruner, and Jennifer. 
The entire KNKX newsroom contributed in one way or another over the past 15 months. Simone Elisea, Ashley Gross, Kari Plogue, Paula Whistle, Liliana Fowler, Bellamy Palethorpe, Kirsten Kendrick, Ed Ronco, Rebecca Way, Aaron Hennessy, Bethany Denton, Kate DeWeese, and Jeffrey Reddick. If you want to support future podcasts like Transmission, go to our website, knkx.org, and make a donation. You want to say a general thank you? Sure. Um, thank you so much for joining us for this crazy ride. Yeah, I think that's, I think that sums it up. Peace out. <laughs> I think, yeah, I like that. <laughs> <laughs>